Welcome to this week's episode of the Creative Ops Podcast, the water cooler for the creative operations community. This is your host, Nish Patel. I'm so glad that you joined me this week as I continue my journey of curiosity about all things creative ops. This is actually our first episode, and today I'm going to be joined by Kate Sullivan, Global Head of Creative Operations at HubSpot, one of my favorite companies. I'm excited to have you hear what Kate has to share. As with every episode, we're going to start off Kate's answer to the question, what is creative operations? It's a question I'm going to be asking in every episode as we as a community, as a profession, as a function, go in search of what is creative operations today and what is it evolving into? We're going to use that as a jumping off point to dig into a number of areas with Kate. I'd characterize this episode as a bit of a slow boil, but stick with it and you'll be feasting on some super tasty ideas. We're going to be talking about creative operations love languages. What? That's right. Creative operations love languages. The importance of understanding different communications and working styles as a way of fueling process and how Kate's getting that done on her team. We're going to be focusing on how to lead with the services mindset. It's something that Kate is super passionate about and how she believes it's created space to be more strategic and impactful. And we're ending up with a really interesting and unexpected discussion around creative operations dining experiences. A different way of thinking about processes as the needs and complexity of what marketing teams need has evolved over time. We're going to be going from the self-service and automation experience of a McDonald's creative operations experience to the meal kit experience a la HelloFresh to the Michelin three-star dining creative operations experience. At the end of the episode, I'm going to share one or two of my thoughts prompted by today's conversation. So sit back and get ready to consume a buffet of knowledge and insights served up with today's guest, Kate Sullivan, Global Head of Creative Operations from HubSpot. What is your definition of creative ops? My definition of creative ops is to make creative work happen as seamlessly as possible. I think that has expanded quite a bit over the years. It includes tools. I know this is different for everybody. People have different team setups, figuring out workflows, figuring out budgets. It's like we're the logistics people behind the creative. What's been interesting over the years is that's evolved from being traditionally project management based, which is the execution of the work. You get a request in, you kick it off, you do the work, you wrap it and you're done. What I've seen happen with creative operations space is that there's a lot more strategy and involvement happening pre-kickoff and happening post-kickoff to make sure that that life cycle of a project is happening as seamlessly as possible, which involves more planning in the beginning or analyzing how things did in the end. That's been exciting to see, but I think it's all still very much in service of making the process as seamless as we can for the creative team, for our partners, being that in-between bridge of those two worlds. I want to come back to your definition because there's a lot of things in there I want to peel the onion on. Where does creative operations sit within HubSpot? Is it within a marketing operations group or does it sit separately in a creative group? We're within the creative team. We sit in the creative team, which is in marketing. And my peers, org-wise, there's someone who runs the studio, and then there's someone who runs the digital experience team, which is essentially UX, UI, and web, and then creative operations. So it's those three pillars within the creative team, is, and then we report through marketing. The majority of the work we do is for marketing, so it, it makes sense that way. Okay. I want to come back to some of that, but a few things I want to pick up on from your definition. You mentioned the word strategy, which is music to my ears. You talked about project management. And one of my opinions that I'm just going to be doing a solo episode on is I think as a creative operations community has grown, it used to be dozens, it's thousands now. I think one of the, I don't know if it's a problem or an opportunity or just a transitory challenge. I think there's been this conflation between project management and creative operations. I think there's conflation confusion, but I think that's one of the things that got the communities a hold stuck in what I call these teenage years. We need to evolve past. But let's start with, you talked about making the work seamlessly happen. Is that making it seamlessly happen for the creative team, for the marketing team, for other stakeholders, or all of the above? I think all of the above. I really do. I think that's one of the 
most important parts about the roles within creative operations is that you're able to speak the language of multiple stakeholders and really understand the needs of the creatives and understand the needs of your stakeholders or partners, whatever people choose. People use different names for that. I think about it in terms of our workflow. We want things to be easy along the way for everybody. It's like you think about how you're setting up your intake, for instance. Like There's always a big discussion around the creative request process and the intake process. How are we making that easy for the people that are using it, which is our stakeholders who are coming to request something? And then how are we helping that translate and being an easy handoff to the producer or the project manager that's going to then work on it? How are we also making it seamless for our resource manager who's going to be looking at resourcing and reporting? And how are we also making that easy for our creatives who have to work within the tool as well? They might not be part of the intake process per se, but our managers and creatives are then going to be working within this project. So that's just one example. Like, how can we look at that holistically? We're not just solving for ourselves. We're not just solving for just the partner in creating this overly simplified form that then doesn't give us what we need. But we're not going to make like an overly complicated form that's a total pain for the partner, but gives us everything we need right away. How do we find that sweet spot and really look at the user journey, I would say, within the creative process? So that's just one example. We're not just serving one team or another team. We're really about the collaborative overall experience that everybody's having. We're not just the gatekeepers for the creative team. It's really about that connection and about that communication bridge between the two worlds, which often can be a pretty wide gap between how creatives, what they need and how they communicate and how they operate versus, let's say, a marketing partner. I mean, that's not always an exact one-to-one in terms of approach. And I think that that's really on creative operations to set up, again, whether it's through tools, people, process, workflows, whatever that is, to make that seamless for everybody, to make it smooth. That book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, flashed in my head. A lot of these folks fundamentally think differently. They might use different vocabulary. They've just got different ways of looking at the work. So Is there like this United Nations translator role that your team is playing through this process as well? The word diplomacy comes up a lot. Absolutely. And I think that's not only in terms of how we're thinking about our process and our workflow, but that also comes up a lot within projects. Uh, A producer or a project manager is often helping to facilitate the creative review process. And the way that a stakeholder sometimes describes something or gives feedback on something doesn't always Sometimes it's great. Like sometimes it's fine. And that can go directly to a designer or a video editor or whatever. And there's very little translating needed. Other times there's a little bit of translating needed. Have you gotten the feedback from everybody who's going to be involved? So we're not getting piecemeal feedback lobbed over while our designer or editors are trying to make cuts. It's like making sure that we're connecting those worlds because again, there can be disconnects. And so I think that is one area where, yeah, there's a diplomacy piece. That's the way that I talk about it a lot is. We are diplomats. We are also sometimes therapists. We are also experts in the creative process and the the tactical nuts and bolts things. The word that comes to mind is soft skills, but I don't like that really because it diminishes it in a way because I think like the overall point is that it's just as important. You know, the communication piece and the collaboration piece shows up in so many aspects of the process. And that's equally as important, in my opinion, to the more nuts and bolts like making the right timeline and knowing the tool in and out and and all of that. I 100% agree with you. I think soft skills, it's increasingly becoming a pet peeve of mine, just that term, because I think, as you said, communications, collaboration are really the, the key ingredients in making any process work. And I think as we're automating more and more of these processes and as AI, which we might touch on a little bit later, starts to make its presence felt and really accelerates and puts automation on steroids. I think the ability for any one of us in whatever role we're in to bring forward our communication and collaboration skills, which are innately human, are going to become that much more vital. And I think it's what's going to separate the brands from the winners, whether that's as individuals or teams or as organizations. So How do you think about, like, within your team, nurturing and bringing forward and prioritizing communication and collaboration skills? There's a few different ways I can think about it. One is it's built into our team, like, it's literally written down 
in our team. We have our mission. We have the wiki page where you can read about our team and it's got our mission statement and it has how we strive to be and how we strive to show up and some of our core principles that we're starting to relook at as well. A lot of it is around communication. So right off the bat, we're telling people this is an important foundation of how we show up and what is important to our team. It's out there. Modeling it is a really big deal as well. I'm not necessarily in every project in the role that I am in, but I think having respectful communication, being open to different ideas, having a you know growth mindset and continuous improvement is something that we talk about a lot in our work and in our overall structure, where you have just a reasonable sense of learning from mistakes and collaborating and not pitting people against each other. It's different people are ex- on projects in different ways and they have different roles. Or like I said myself, I'm not even really in projects per se all the time. You can model that kind of communication in a variety of settings. So it's just a matter of keeping that always top of mind. Something more tactical we did recently was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the DISC training, where it's essentially a communication style, personality kind of assessment. So we had our whole team the whole creative operations team did, and, and I did it too. It was great. You learn a lot about your preferences and your natural communication style and how you will naturally operate. And then I'll, the, the main takeaway there is that where you fall in the quadrant of the DISC quadrant, whether you're more D-I-S-C, a hybrid, it's not to say like, okay, now everyone can just be however they want all the time. Good to know. Like file that away. The idea is how far does everyone have to move? If I'm more of a D personality and someone else is more of a C personality and we're working on something together, how far do our dots have to move in order for us to really communicate well with each other? Having that baseline understanding that we are all humans that have this innate way that we do things and then we have to adjust in the work environment. And sometimes if we're working with people who are just like us and have the similar sort of operating sense and pace and communication style and attention to detail, et cetera, it can feel really easy. But that's not the reality. We don't always get to pick and choose the people that are going to be easier for us personally to work with. So I think one of the things that's really important to do is help everyone have self-awareness around their working styles and then being aware of other people's working styles. And it was a really beneficial exercise. And immediately, even within the session, people working with each other were like, Oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense. Like sometimes we leave a meeting a little confused because like you're handling it this way and I'm expecting this way. It's just, it was a really interesting exercise to go through and just helps, again, reinforce that baseline of importance of how we show up, what we expect, how we talk, how we write, how quickly we digest things versus needing to simmer on something. That was a a recent one that I would highly recommend as a team building communication building activity. Everyone now has self-awareness of their own communication style. They see others' communication style across your creative ops team, and it creates that opportunity for understanding. Before you did DISC, it probably felt like, oh, Bob and Susan have a lot of friction. And now there's understanding of why that friction is there, which actually sort of allows the friction to dissipate then once there's understanding, right? And You're making me flash to weekend breakfast I had with my girlfriend and we got into a conversation about love languages and the five love languages and things like that. And as a typical dude, I initially roll my eyes at these things, but then the more we're talking about it, the more it sort of goes like, oh, okay. I see why when we have these types of animated discussions or arguments, like we're coming from different ways of looking at things and how we communicate ourselves and DISC feels like, and as you said, there's like different methodologies. It's just sort of like the low languages for teams and organizations, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard the concept of personal user manuals, but more and more people are putting together these user manuals of when they enter a new team or organization, hey, here's a little bit about me so you know how I'm wired. And I've done a version of this for a few years now with some individuals, and I'm just thinking about like publishing it now and just going, here's the way I'm wired. So are you now using this with your clients within HubSpot and going, here's how people across the creative ops team communicate? So across the creative team, do they know this now? And do you see it going more broadly across the marketing team? And if they did it too, then 
I see that really helping to facilitate that whole process. This was actually an internal offering. This is something that our internal team, I, I looked around at various sort of external options for this type of activity. And it turned out it was like right under my nose, like in the learning and development team, which is amazing. So there's quite a few people in our partner world within the rest of the creative team and also the rest of marketing who have done it. And you can actually look it up and you can see people's results. I don't know that other teams are necessarily doing it as a team building activity all the time. Like we've talked to a few different partners where we're like, wow, this would be really great. The other thing about creative teams and how it works is that you have your team. Like there's a bunch of us who are on creative operations. We're a team together. But the majority of time, producers and project managers especially are spending with their project teams. So most of their day is actually spent with these. So that is something that came up where we're like, anywhere where we can dig in more with those groups, and especially when there's dedicated teams that work together almost all the time and there's very little change, this could be a great exercise for them. So that came up as well. Right now, it's a little piecemeal where if someone happens to have done it, great, but there hasn't been like a concerted effort to have everybody do it. We do user manuals as well. This is the first place I've worked that does that, and that... I love. You have to set expectations around that so that people understand like, oh, you're not just sort of saying, here's how I like to operate. End of discussion. (laughs) You're saying, here's how I like to operate. This is good awareness so I can better collaborate with other people and how they like to operate. And what I found to be really interesting and very hopeful in terms of just humanity in general is that people generally get more of this type of information and have this self-awareness. And I I saw this with the disc. I've seen this with the user manuals. And the instinct is to want to extend yourself to help. Like I've seen that more. I've seen that happen more where people are like, and I have this happen with myself where I was like, oh, wow, I'm more of a person who likes to think on the fly. And I like to brainstorm in the moment. And I could get into a 30-minute meeting and glance over, of course, I'll have an agenda. I'm not going to like totally fly by the seat of my pants. I'm not like that crazy, but I can roll with things a little bit more. And I have people on my team who I meet with regularly that are much more comfortable with more structure, more predictability, more needing to not like necessarily brainstorm and decide in the moment how something's going to go. They want to think about it a little bit. They want to sleep on it. I have learned so much from having that awareness where I'm like, wow, My instinctual way doesn't work for everybody and can actually make people feel like we're making rush decisions or they're on the spot. I was like, oh my gosh, we can take more time. (laughs) We don't have to decide everything right now. Let's all sleep on it, you know, and like get back in touch in a few days. And I realized I was actually making better decisions by making that accommodation. So it's just that it was interesting to see that happen over and over where it's not just like a mandate, like dictating out, here's how I operate and this is what I do. People's instinct is to want to get this valuable information and (laughs) then help others not put up a wall. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I did not expect that. I I love that. And I'm going to take this back to where you started with your definition of creative operations, because I think often in creative operations, and I don't think this was wrong, this was right for a very long time where it was let's come up with the optimal process for producing content because the mission was more and faster and as cost-effective as possible. All those things still matter in a world where most teams need to push out more and more content and do it quicker and budgets are getting constantly squeezed. But I think in the pursuit of that, we sort of got hung up on what is the one optimal process? And it could be an optimal process based on content type or campaign type or something like that. But what you're really hitting at here with this DISC approach or personal user manuals is we really need to understand how each of us works because the process isn't like the workflow chart. The process isn't the technology. The process isn't like the metrics that we get. And we'll talk about data. The process is us. It's the people. So if we really want to make that process effective and ultimately I don't think the objective is like how much, how quickly, and how cost-effectively. Those are good data points to have. I think what really matters ultimately is, is the creative serving the needs of the business? Does it have to be great creative? Does it have to be adapted to audiences or on a one-to-one basis? Whatever that might be, like what are the business objectives? And I think to get there, You're talking about making better decisions. You're talking about working better together. And I think 
what you're doing is moving you towards that. The word that just came to mind and that I jotted down here was just like being less rigid. I think overall, that's the direction that we need to be moving. That can be for early days of creative operations. And then before creative operations were the thing, and we're talking more about project management and production management being sort of these separate things. I think there was a assumption that the more rigid and the more rules and the more manual process, like manual, I mean, like you get like a user manual for the process and you just follow it down. That was how it was supposed to go. And that was going to give us the guardrails that we need. And that was going to make things as efficient as possible and predictable as possible. And I think what we found is that there is a sweet spot there. It is not about mandating a rigid process. That's not going to get you there. There are very few of us who are teams, creative teams, who are working on one type of project where one type of process is always going to work. We actually just did a big deep dive of our whole operating model because we had a lot of different processes for a lot of different types of projects. We have video and we have visual design and there was a lot of conversations around how does there need to be one way? Do we all need to be operating the same way? And the answer is no. I mean, we talked to a ton of people. We dug in and there's certain things that all projects need to be effective, but we need people to be able to be flexible and not rigid, but make intentional, smart decisions. Again, not a free-for-all, like I am not like a free-for-all person, but there's an in-between, which again, this is similar to how we were talking about people's personalities and communication styles. It's the same with process, where it's like, understand the tools, understand the methodologies that are out there and available, understand what all that means, but then apply it in a way that is practical and makes sense. If something is not practical, and you're making people jump through process hoops that don't feel practical to the project, like that is so frustrating. (laughs) Especially for people who aren't into process, which like most people aren't. Being less rigid is a big piece of it, which takes more work. That's not saying like, oh, wow, this just got easy. It's actually sometimes harder to have to think more specifically about the needs right in front of you, the business needs, like you call out. I mean, that's the most important thing. Are we serving the business at hand? That And then, of course, efficiency and costs and all these sort of things are important, equally as important, but making sure people are focusing on what's right in front of them and being a little adaptable and a little agile takes a little bit more work, but you, I think, end up with better collaboration and better output. So that's a good segue to picking up on the word strategy that you used early on and maybe talking a little bit about data. You're just mentioning making smart decisions. And and I agree with you. I think often rigid processes, they're sort of safe, right? Nobody ever got in trouble for following the process. I'm old enough to remember that people used to say nobody got fired for hiring IBM to do a project or buying technology from IBM, right? Um, the uh, The millennials listening won't get that reference, they can look it up on Wikipedia. But strategy, smart decisions, like how are you arming your team with the ability to make smart decisions? Is it simply common sense? Are they looking at certain data points? You also mentioned like serving the needs of the business, like the business outcomes. How do you empower your team to make those decisions? Well, so we're not always making those decisions. We're often facilitating the creative portion of that. The majority of the time, it's our partners across marketing or other teams internally that we work with that, that we're trusting to have done that work to make sure that what they're coming to us with is serving the business that, that ladders up to our goals. And Usually it does. And this isn't even just about where I work now. This is just in general. It's it's hit or miss. But I do think that people are getting a lot better at making that connection and realizing that we need to be precious about our time and our energy and that nobody likes false starts and we need to be really clear on what we're doing. The thing that I focus on within my team where it's like we can fit into that process and help facilitate it is in the planning phases and really trying to help people, to help our team and and others understand what's coming down the pipeline so that we can better resource for it, so we can understand what it is and 
the more people plan, the more they're thinking ahead, the less reactionary it is. Of course, there's going to be things that come up last minute that we need to do sometimes. Like that's fine too. And sometimes the best ideas and the most impactful ideas are in response to something very quickly. And that's how that has to happen. The more that teams are planning and thinking ahead and taking a beat and being like, does this ladder up? How is this connected to other teams? We're often seeing connections across projects that may or may not have been noticed by the stakeholders. So if two different teams don't work together that closely and they both put in a creative request that has some crossover, (laughs) that can be an area where the creative team, I think, has the opportunity to step up and be like, oh, we should all get together. (laughs) Everyone should talk here. The other thing on the opposite side of the workflow that our team facilitates is retros and quarterly business reviews and really being proactive. If and when any analytics exists for how the creative did, that our team is made aware of that, that that's not just being shared in a silo, but how can we get that back into the loop so that our people who are making things, the designers and the creative directors and everybody who's involved knows how something did, knows how that might impact how we want to do it next time. And really being the facilitators of those and getting and analyzing all the analytics that are coming back, but it's just making sure that we're aware of it and that that's making its way back into the teams. I'd like to dig into a bit on how you might be using that data in different parts of the process. I get that you're not generating the data or doing the analysis. You're consuming it though. Some other team is grabbing all of that, which is great. So are you using that during that upfront planning phase when a request comes in and what kind of data might the creative ops team or the creative people assigned to a project be looking at that point to either determine what to do, or are they even using the data to say, we shouldn't do this? Like, we know you requested us to do X, but X sort of doesn't make sense based on some of the data that you might have. That's where it's really a collaboration. There aren't that many examples where something's coming in and we're saying like, no, we've re-looked at your data and we've decided we're not going to do this. Typically, the partners are doing that. And that's the ideal scenario, is that we're not having to catch things. And also just being more involved with some of the teams earlier on. We also have some teams that are working very iteratively, and there's constant data being shared out. And it is just like a constant loop. There's no start and stop. It's like they're just always taking, testing, learning, iterating, testing. It's like a very agile process. And when we have work like that, what we'll do is put a, a focused, dedicated team on it so that we're not onboarding new people in and having to start from scratch each time. So that's a way for this kind of reporting loop to just happen really naturally within a team. A lot of times it's those project teams that become the people's teams. <laughs> like everyone's part of that team, sometimes more so than they're part of the t- their reporting structure team. Those conversations are happening within the team. But we do rely on our partners and stakeholders. They're bringing the strategy, typically. There are times where we will have someone from the creative team be more involved in that piece. And then, yeah, when I was thinking about strategy, like creative operations, what we do own is the strategy around our operating model and how we get the work done. So that's just that extra layer where it's like, we do own that. We are in charge of that. And that's where we do retros to... It's not necessarily just about how something performed. It's about how did the work go? Where are there parts of the process that we can clean up? That's an area that we do have clear ownership over. So in terms of strategy around the process, which I assume like accountability for that really sits with you as the global head of creative ops, what are some of the quantitative or qualitative metrics or data points that help you know that, yeah, we're on track or we're too rigid or we're not flexible enough and we need to make some changes. I mentioned earlier, we just went through this big kind of deep dive audit into our various processes. And the main takeaway after getting a lot of more qualitative feedback and hearing from a lot of people across the board is that people want to have with intention some level of autonomy and flexibility for the type of, for what's right for a project. We talked to a ton of people and put different scenarios out there to say, do you want more rules? Do you want less rules? And it wasn't like they were going to necessarily decide, but like, what's the ideal state? And it was amazing how aligned everybody was on wanting 
some guardrails and some project basics to follow that we definitely know we need, but some autonomy and flexibility in how that plays out on a per project basis. So that was one more very recent qualitative way to reset ourselves and get ourselves on the right foot. In terms of knowing how well we're doing with this, I think a lot of it goes back to how well are we able to respond to the requests that we're getting? How well are we set up? Are we responding well to some of those more last minute, less planned requests? Are we able to resource that properly? Are we able to get on it without it being a frustrating experience for our partner and without having to say like, sure, yeah, maybe we can get to that in two months. So it's like, we've been really looking at resourcing and resource management and pulling data around the types of projects that we get in times of year where things get busier in one area or less busier in another area, like looking at how we can have better visibility into everybody's capacity, ability to take things at a given point. So that's one that I'm looking at right now is just in terms of our ability to respond to requests and not have them sit. And is that something you deliberately track now where you go... For a last minute urgent request, it usually takes us like a week to start on it. And then do you have a target in mind of we want to be able to start on it within 24 hours? It's not that precise yet. We're not bad at it, I will say. There's areas where we're looking at, but like I'm not at this point saying we're going to respond to everything and kick everything off within five days of discussion. I would never be able to keep a promise like that because we just don't know throughout the year throughout the month, it's less about saying we promise we're going to be able to do this. And it's more about making sure that we have the right visibility within our team to understand exactly who can take what when, even if it's slightly outside of what they normally do. This is all about just being as efficient as we can. So that's an area that we're looking at currently. And that requires a lot of reporting, a lot of understanding of the types of requests we're getting in, when they tend to hit, how we're honestly looking at people's capacity and knowing who might be available outside of like the, the general obvious areas. And then just going back to that first part where it sounds like you're doing a lot of qualitative based interviews with people on your team, the creative team, the marketing team. Would it be fair to say they were mostly like qualitative questions you're asking people? And from that, what were the top one, two, three changes that you've made or are in the process of making coming out of that and why? So one of the biggest things was really clarifying and rallying everyone around what we're calling project basics <laughs> and what the things are that no matter what like off-the-shelf methodology somebody may be familiar with or may be comfortable with, might be that there's certain things within Project Basics that everybody needs to be focusing on. So outlining all of that, none of it was brand new, but we did look and see how some of our projects were measuring up in the various areas, and we were able to identify that there's some areas where we need to reset or provide more templatization or guidance, and there's some areas where we're doing fine. Coming out of that, a main takeaway was Yes, there's autonomy, but it's about what's best for the project. It's not somebody's personal preference. You don't just get to say like, hey, at my last job, I worked in Scrum. And so here, we're going to work in Scrum exactly like this by the book. It's like knowing that there's a conversation that needs to be had. <laughs> you need to understand the project, understand the work, collaborate closely with the team. And the creative operations will ultimately be the decision maker around that to help keep it a little more intentional. There's a lot we're working on within that right now. There's about 10 things. It's like, when to use a brief? When do you need a brief? When do you not need a brief? And here's the template for it. Making sure that everybody's clear on our intake process so that we aren't doing what I call shoulder taps. <laughs> there aren't people just like circumventing the process entirely and going directly to a designer. That's like nothing new, but it's something that we're reinforcing. So there's a bunch of things within that list that we're focusing on right now. So the one thing that keeps coming through to me as we're having this discussion, and this goes back to something you and I have talked about offline previously, that led you to recommending a awesome TV show that I'm not recommending <laughs> to everybody called The Bear. Amazing show. It's a show based in a restaurant. And you've talked about the process can be rigid or I'm almost hearing and seeing handcuffs. And I think a lot of organizations are trapped into processes handcuffs, but you're providing that 
flexibility. There's certain rules for how we work. Your project management basics, you're really reinforcing in terms of the DNA of the team. Like we're focused on outcomes. Like if it makes sense to deviate from the process, uh, process in support of the outcomes, do that. Um, and then we'll pick it up in retro and see, did that make sense? Do we need to change the process? Uh, was that incorrect in that instance where we serve neither the outcomes nor the process well. So what's coming through to me is a really rigid process allows you to walk into McDonald's and you know what you're going to get, right? Like I'm going to get my cheeseburger. I'm going to get my happy meal, but they're not really going to cater to my needs. If you want a McDonald's cheeseburger, come on in and we'll have it in your hands within like 37 seconds versus going to a Michelin starred restaurant where there is structure, like it's usually a set menu. There's going to be seven courses, but they'll ask and go, do you have any dietary restrictions? Are there certain things you don't like or that you prefer? And they'll really try and cater to your needs because their focus, like for yourself and your team, is on the outcome. They want me to have a great dining experience versus, no, you have to eat the way we tell you to eat, yeah, which is what McDonald's does. And that's not wrong. It's their business model. I've been thinking and talking a lot about the restaurant analogy for some time now. And it actually started years ago with somebody that I used to work with. We were trying to get our partners to understand why planning was important. And we're like, how can we get this to resonate? And Brad Miner is who I'm talking about. So I've actually worked with at Pandora and at HubSpot. We were like, it's kind of like a restaurant. It's like, if you make a reservation at a restaurant, you get to go in and 9% of the time you're going to sit down and you're going to get to eat at the time you want to eat and you're going to get what you want. If you don't make a reservation, you might go in and you might get a table, but you might have to wait at the bar. You might have to go somewhere else. Like it's a little less predictable. People generally understand that type of behavior in a restaurant setting. Nobody's going to barge into a restaurant and be like, what do you mean that you can't take my party of 10 right now and you haven't made a reservation? Like... Generally, we have a social contract in place that like that's understood. So we're like, how can we translate that to the planning process for creative and getting people a little bit more on board with why we plan? It's about resourcing. It's about making sure we have what you need and that we can help you in the moment that you need it. Also on our end, making sure we do save some room for walk-ins. Like that's the ad hoc work that I was referencing earlier. We shouldn't be so rigid in our planning process that we only book our reservations. We do want some people to be able to just walk in. But how do we get our partners to understand why we're asking them to plan? Because they were kind of annoyed. They were like, can't we just get what we need when we need it? So that was years ago. <laughs> and it has only continued to deepen and evolve in what I believe to be a really valuable and powerful analogy to help people understand everything we've been talking about, which is just how we show up as a team and what's our role clarity within this. So the way I see this is you walk into a restaurant and there's a host. And that for us would be our managers, people who are managing intake. They're the ones that you first talk to and you tell them like, oh, did you have plans? Do you have a reservation? Did you not? All right, we're going to work with you. That person, you want to be pleasant. You want them to be realistic. You want to give them real information. I'm sure we've all been places where that hasn't been the case. It's not great. You sit down at your table, your servers who are extremely knowledgeable about everything on the menu and can help guide you. Like you come in and you say you want chicken and they might be able to say like, oh, you like chicken. Well, did you check out this specific chicken dish? It's excellent. And then they might say, oh, well, I also have these dietary restrictions. Like, oh, no problem. We'd love to help you with that. We'll see what we can do. And again, sort of translating the needs. And this is in our case, like our project managers and our producers. to then going back into the kitchen and translating with them like, all right, this is what people are looking for. This is what we're trying to do. And the kitchen, they know in and out what they're doing, what they're making. That's our studio team, our devs, our UX UI teams. There's times where it's been sensitive. Like I was actually very sensitive about bringing this up because in the creative operations space, and we talk about this sort of earlier years, and I would say for some still happening now, like service is seen as a bad word. It's seen as a bad thing. So I'm sitting here thinking I could go on and on with this. And it's helping us to understand that we have the privilege of service, that we are experts. This is a service that is a mixture of expertise and also creating an excellent experience. But I was nervous to talk about this with creative teams 
Because there's this other side of service that feels like rote order taker, not strategic, doing what everybody says. And there was this negative connotation with service where I was like, I get it. But also, how can we undo that and actually have that? It became like a new sticking point. I was like, we need to reclaim service because it's exactly where we started this conversation, communication styles and collaboration. That's what it's all about. That's a huge part of our job. So having that analogy and being able to understand that sort of restaurant behavior, I mean, like I joke about it too, where it's like, you don't walk into a restaurant and barge into the kitchen and tell the chef to just make you a burger. That would be bypassing the entire process that everybody's just agreed to and what we call a shoulder tap. There's times where it breaks down. Like there's times where it doesn't really work. Like for instance, in our creative project work, the studio, the makers, the chefs, do talk directly to the people who are consuming the food. In a restaurant, it is much more separated. But like, I think you generally get where I'm going with it. It's a wonderful analogy because going back to the McDonald's part of it, that also lines up well with what a lot of, um, maybe not a lot, but more and more teams are doing in terms of self-service systems. I know you're doing oh, a lot yeah. of that at HubSpot. And we're going to be talking to one of, one of your colleagues on your team, Mark Brady, who is a brilliant creative technologist and I think of as an automation savant. So I think of McDonald's as like the self-service portion of it. So if you need to go fast, if you've already got like the strategy and the data and you want to do, especially an experiment or something, cool, spin up your own things because the infrastructure that is there for you, if it's for something outside of that, then yeah, let's have a Michelin star dining experience where right. there is a structure around it. And we've got experts here who are going to ensure that you have a great dining or, in this case, a great creative experience at the end of it. And you're going to leave us a five-star review. Mark Brady, Solutions Team, they really focus on self-serve and automation. And like I just jotted down, he's an automation savant. I think that's excellent. And so we were talking about how that fits into this restaurant model. And actually, I would say it's not the like McDonald's cool restaurant does because we're ahead of the curve, which is... You go in and you buy, you get sort of a pre, you're then going to go home and finish yourself. Like that's so what's it's it. it's like, you're actually like going to like, well, to use our data, to use Canva, to use these tools to make it themselves. So it's like, no, you're not getting that restaurant experience necessarily, but you're getting really good food. It's going it, to, but like, we're still providing a really easy way for you to do that. Whereas, and then, then managers recently and they're like, yeah, I think our restaurant, even though it's a really nice restaurant, there are going to be times where it's like, they don't need to come sit at the table and like take up a bunch of our time and energy. Like maybe we're a restaurant that does have a drive-through, but it's so not a McDonald's. Now I'm seeing three restaurants, then it makes total sense. Yeah. I think it's a great way to sort of use something we're all familiar with, as you said, to think differently about how we're approaching clear yeah. operations. And our roles within it. It's easier yeah. for people to see themselves in that. And everybody is important. There's not a better than, less than. People have different skills and they're all important. Something else that a coworker brought up too, there's also just the idea that like if something spills, whoever's there cleans it up. That's not just like on one person to do. There's a real teamwork mentality to how this plays out. We've talked about the restaurant thing before and it reminds me of this uh, book written by uh, Will, I'm going to butcher his last name, Guidera. It's called Unreasonable Hospitality. And he is a restaurateur. Maybe one of the things we should be doing in the creative ops field is reading more books by these restaurateurs yeah. who are really deep rooted in this ethos of service. I like the way that you framed it. I think very often, and even today for a lot of creative ops teams, they are viewed as or self-perceived as a services bureau. Stuff just gets thrown over the wall and it's just like, get it done. I think if all of them, just like you have flipped that script and just started from a place of we're here in service of great creative. We're here in service of a great user experience for everybody involved in this process and really think of it as orchestrating this great dining experience. Yeah. Um, whether you're going through the drive through window, you're getting your meal kits delivered three times a week. <laughs> or you're getting the Michelin-starred experience. I think that this is an easier thing for teams to wrap their head around when they're a little bit further along in that like maturing process because they 
do feel more involved. They do feel like there's more partnership with the partners. It is less of a throw it over the fence and you have no say, don't ask any questions, just do what I say. So I do recognize that there's some teams where maybe that's still more the case. And this would be a harder thing for people to get on board with. But like my hope is that as creative teams evolve, especially in-house creative teams, that there's a new level of respect and there's a new level of understanding around what we do. And that can help us to then take this next leap of being like, oh, no, wait, service is good. That's an honor (laughs) to be a part of that. That's not being dumped on. So it just depends where teams are at. I think it puts you in a better position to frame it that way, because I think it changes the dynamic and going back to what we were talking about previously, like our, um, if you will, our love languages of how we each communicate. What's coming through for me is maybe sort of the dominant love language of your creative ops team is service. And then everyone's got their own way of approaching that in terms of their own communication style. I like that. Um, All right. So, Kate, as we're wrapping up here, the two things I'm going to be thinking about, um, one is HubSpot and it's uh, creative operations dining experiences. And I'm also going to be thinking about HubSpot and creative operations love languages. But those are two incredibly powerful frameworks for anybody listening to be thinking about the dining experience one. I love because it speaks to scale. It speaks to better service. It touches and checks so many boxes. I think that is a fuel that has always been required, but now in this age of automation and AI, and we'll have to have you back for another episode and dig more into AI. But I think what you're doing with your team, I would highly recommend that for any team to help people understand their own communication styles and that of others will be that fuel that really facilitates process and allows you to have a process that's a guide, not handcuffs, and allow people to adapt on the fly and really be in service of what is the outcome that matters. Yeah, it's a topic for another episode, but be able to really embrace the automation side of what AI has to offer without feeling threatened by it, because AI won't be able to do that sort of service and human connection. It's very true. So final question that we ask every guest Who would you like to hear on the podcast? I would love to hear from someone who's not in creative operations, who's one of the partners that we're talking about, maybe a creative director or the head of a studio or a marketing partner, someone who interacts with creative ops, but is not on creative ops. I 100% agree with you. So in the intro episode of this relaunch creative ops podcast, one of the points I stress is this isn't just going to be interviews with creative ops leaders such as yourself. We're going to be having CMOs on, creative technologists like Mark Brady, and there's also going to be creative directors on, AI nerds, data nerds, because creative operations feels like it's in its teenage phase for us to continue to mature as a profession, as a community, and to be more strategic in the organizations within which we operate. We need to broaden the conversation and invite those other roles and leaders into the conversation and go... How do you view creative operations? What do you need from creative operations? And what do they see as the current and the future value of creative operations? I love it. I love that you're already thinking about that. Episode one's in the bag. And I think we started off with a pretty good episode. We got some really interesting takes and ideas. And I wanted to share a couple of things I've been thinking about since I had this conversation with Kate. I want to go back to the idea of creative operations, love languages, and really the value of understanding each other, our different communications and working styles. So often in our profession, we reach for technology to solve problems or achieve desired outcomes, or we redesign the process. But when we talk about that holy trinity of people, process, technology, it's really the people that's the fuel of everything. And I think too often we boil ourselves down to just what are our skills that we put on our resumes? Hey, we're really good at Photoshop. We're amazing at project management. We're really good at strategic planning or translating a strategic plan into an execution plan. But getting the work done is about communicating with each other and i think through that we often forget that we each have our own operating systems as well like the way i communicate and work is very much different than you or anybody else and we gloss over that 
So I think what Kate's doing with her team is super interesting uh, through the combination of personal user manuals and using that disk process for somebody to identify and analyze and understand their own communications and working style operating system. And then to be able to share that with other people on the team, I definitely want to have Kate back for a follow-up episode. I think it'll be interesting to see how they use that. And especially as they come upon times where they're thinking about changing process, how do those different communications and working styles factor into that? Or in the here and now of getting work done today, how is that being taken into account in terms of who they're going to put on which projects? There's a lot of value in what Kate is doing, and that's an area I want to dig into more and talk to other folks in the field about that. And the other thing I'm thinking about is Kate's point of view about leading with the services mindset. I think that is so critical, and it ended up tying back into that whole idea of creative operations dining experiences, which I really loved. I'm a bit of a foodie or maybe I just like to eat a lot. And I love creative operations, so combine the two. I've been a longtime fan of reading about some of our great restaurateurs like Danny Meyer and Will Guidera. And I think there's a lot to be learned from different types of dining experiences. In fact, I've got this idea, maybe I'll get together some of my favorite creative ops people and we'll go out to one of Danny Meyer's or Will Guidera's restaurants and have a meal and just see how they have this organized dining experience, but they make room and space to lead with service and make sure that every customer walks away with the experience that they wanted. Not the one designed on the whiteboard in terms of like adhering to the perfect process, but ultimately what they wanted. I think that services mindset, especially as more of the transactional work gets automated in this unfolding age of AI, is going to become increasingly important and allow creative ops teams to transition from that transactional and service bureau role into having that strategic impact and the creative work being more impactful. You're going to hear some of that coming up in future episodes. Anyways, enough from me today. You've heard me go on and on. So I'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts about today's episode? What are your questions, ideas? Do you have a different point of view than some of what Kate shared with us today or some of my own opinions that may have crept into the conversation during today's episode. If you do, I'd love it if you drop me a line at nish at creativeops.fm. And again, I'm so grateful for the time and attention that you've given me and joining me on my journey of curiosity about all things creative ops. I would be so grateful if you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player, or if you headed over to creativeops.fm and signed up for the companion newsletter. Thanks again very much, and I look forward to seeing you at the Creative Ops Water Cooler on next week's episode.